BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. I'm revisiting some of my favorite Sway episodes this month. Today's pick is my conversation with writer and New York City icon, Fran Lebowitz. Fran has been dispensing advice in sardonic comedy since the 1970s, but I spoke with her in February 2021 as vaccines were slowly rolling out and New York was inching towards reopening. Since then, the city has bounced back. But one thing hasn't changed. Fran and I are still opinionated, grumpy lesbian boomers. And thank God for it. Take a listen. Hello. Hello. Hi, Fran. Yeah, I, who, whoever this other person is, I cannot hear them. This is Kara Swisher. How you doing? Hi. I, I really can't hear you very well. Oh, okay. I'm going to turn up my uh, volume a lot. How is that? Is that good? Can you hear better? It's better, not good. I hear you well enough. Well enough. That's where we're going to go for it. So I have a question. Now, I know you famously don't own a computer, but I heard you actually do have email. Is that correct? I have no internet connection in this apartment. Okay. Do you actually have an email address? I do not. You do not. And you, but you do have a Twitter handle. Is that correct? That is not me. The first time I was aware of a computer that someone would have in their house, a friend of mine who was a screenwriter got one. At that point, they were called word processors. Mm-hmm. Um, and she s- said, I got this incredible thing. You have to come see it. So I went to her apartment. I looked at it. And I thought, this is just a very fast kind of typewriter. So I don't have a typewriter. I don't need this. Now, of course, I didn't know the entire world would go into this machine. You know, I had no idea. So it wasn't like I decided, you know, I'm never going to have these machines. I never had the first one. It's not a stance. It's not an ideology. It was kind of an accident. Would you imagine joining at this date? Because there's now voice stuff. There's all kinds of holograms. There's virtual reality. There's uh, all kinds of different ways now to interact with technology. It just doesn't have an appeal to me. I mean, I realize there's numerous things going on in the world that I'm not engaged in, but that was always the case. All right. So one of the things I am is fascinated by the new, the new, new thing. Oh, new things. You know, Certainly, this is, when I was young, I was much more interested in new things. I think this is universal. I've never been that riveted by, and any kind of machine or technology, I've never been that interested in. You know, to me, this goes under the category of science, and no one is less of a scientist than I am. I'm not particularly scientific, so it's kind of interesting to think about someone who's not interested in this at all, and I'm completely uh, surrounded by it. But let me assure you, I've owned the same car since 1978, and it was maybe five years ago, I figured out how to open the hood of the car. (laughs) What car was that? What kind of car? Well, I have actually an exquisite car. I have a 1979 Checker Marathon. The Checker car company made mostly taxis, but they also made a passenger car. And so that's the car I have. I've had this car not my entire life, but 
since 1978. Do you still drive it? I do. Where? Well, it depends. I mean, I when I first bought it, I was young. I was 27, and I used to drive it all around town. Uh, and a friend of mine said, don't drive that car all over town because everyone knows it's your car. And uh, I said, that's ridiculous. This is New York. There's a billion people here. And one night, I left the car in front of uh, someone's apartment. And when I came down in the morning, there was a note under my windshield from a friend of mine who lived in that neighborhood saying, what are you doing in this neighborhood? So I stopped doing that. So why not do things like tweet or be on Twitter or social media? What is your, what is your, you think you'd be good at it? Well, I mean, I can tell you from very often people have said to me, not since this has come out, you know, you should be on the internet, friend. There's a lot of great things about you. I said, I'm sure there's also a lot of horrible things about me. And I don't want to see all these things all the time. And as far as Twitter is concerned, I, and I don't remember when this was, it was several years ago. I was standing outside of a restaurant in New York um, and smoking a cigarette and an actor uh, who I recognized, I did not know him, stopped. He was walking past and he said, thanks, you know, I really am enjoying our conversation on Twitter. Thanks for all the great things you say about me and my performance and this. And I didn't know what he was talking about. And when I told him it wasn't me, he became furious at me. At you. You know, it, I said, this is not me. I don't have Twitter. And he, I think the reason he became angry is he was embarrassed. Right. You know, uh, and then I met the guy whose name I now cannot think of who owns Twitter or invented Twitter, you probably know. Jack Dorsey. Yes. I met him and I told him this. And I said, you have to fix this because it's not fair that someone pretends to be me and people are talking to this person or tweeting with them or whatever. And he said, no, here's what you have to do. You have to open a Twitter account called The Real Fran Leibowitz. I said, here's what I have to do. Do I own Twitter? This is what you have to do. But of course, as you are aware, that is not what they do. And that to me is outrageous. So what happened? What happened then? Nothing. I mean, I'm sure this is something among the many things that people who own these companies do not have to do is be in any way responsible for this stuff. You know, I didn't do anything. I didn't open a Twitter account. And for all I know, there's one or two or 30 people pretending to meet me on Twitter. Well, if you had to tweet, what would you tweet? I would tweet nothing. Nothing. I would tweet nothing. Okay. I know... Tons of people do this. I don't care if they do it, but I don't want to do it. But I really object to people being able to do it, you know, as someone else. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's been a little issue with the impact of social media on our culture with uh, President Trump and the attack on the Capitol. A lot of it was fomented online on social media. So you're right to be angry at them. You talk about it in Pretend It's a City, the idea of, of these people in Silicon Valley having so much power. You know, I think I could be wrong, but I really think what happened was when this started, certainly no one in power, by which I mean political power, had the slightest idea of what this was. You know, I mean, there is an enormous gap, first of all, in age between most of these people and politicians. So it became, I don't, I don't know if it's the biggest uh, industry in the country, but it's certainly among, if not the most influential. Yeah. Now, do I think it should be regulated? I absolutely do. You know, any industry that has this huge effect on so many people should be regulated. So I think of you as an influencer of a different era. How do you look at yourself? How do you define yourself? Because on the show, you said, I have no power, but I'm filled with opinions. I have no power. You know, I say, you know, something I think, or I offer my opinion. Very often people become enraged by this. And this startles me because I have no power to affect these things. You know, 
If I say, I think that Twitter should be regulated, it doesn't mean it gets regulated. You know, no matter what I say, it doesn't mean that something happens because I say this. You know, people should be outraged at people who have power, not people who do not have power. As I said, by power, I mean political power or even financial power, which I also don't have. Well, don't you think you have influence with your opinions? I mean, you are a commentator. You're kind of an influencer of a different type. Well, I know this word exists, influencer. I know what it's supposed to mean. It seems largely, by the way, to be a commercial enterprise to me. Um, so that, you know, the same way they now call, you know, commercials short films, they're still commercials. So you can call yourself an influencer. You're still a shill in lots of ways. So uh, I have never had the experience of, not often had the experience, of people, you know, listening to what I say or reading what I write and then doing what I say. That is what I think of as influence. Right. So when you do have opinions, people are moved by them and then people get upset. Um, I assume you know about cancel culture, this thing that exists largely on the internet, but it moves uh, to the analog quite a bit. Well, I'm aware of it. I believe I know what it is. I mean, I think it, it depends what it's about. You know, in other words, there seems to be a very high level of outrage over things that are both trivial and monumental. You know, so that if someone says something or does something on the internet that exposes them as, say, a racist, fine, cancel them. We don't need any more racists. We have plenty. You know, there just seems to be the same level of outrage over every single thing. So I don't think you should be canceled if you color your hair. But if you are discovered to be a racist, fine, cancel them. And, and do you think it goes too far? Because cancel culture is about you don't get to listen to them anymore. You don't get to hear them. You shouldn't uh, listen to them as an artist. I think James Levine you were also talking about. Okay, so James Levine was the director of the Metropolitan Opera. And he was uh, accused of having uh, sexually harassed boys. Um, he was fired from the Metropolitan mm -hmm. Opera. I agreed, if these things were true, that he should be fired from his job. I did not agree that they should stop selling his recordings. You know, numerous people, when that happened, said, I can't listen to him anymore, you know, without thinking about this. And I thought, well, I can, you know. I mean, a recording is not a person. So uh, I objected to that. I did not object to his firing. So, uh, you know, that was my point. Okay, um, so you, you haven't been writing a lot more, but you've managed to make a living purely on your wit. Uh, you've done a little acting and you're a professional public speaker, but mostly people pay to hear your opinions. Why do you think people want to listen to you? I think because it amuses them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people want to be amused. You know, it's a kind of entertainment. I know, you know, I take questions from the audience when I do these things or when I did them before the pandemic. Um, and I could tell people would ask me questions, just, weird questions, you know, just to, you know, in the hopes I would say something funny, you know, mm -hmm. not because the subject was important even to them. So do you consider yourself an observational comic, a humorist, a social scientist, a raconteur? I mean, that's an old word, but. But it's a good one. <laughs> um, I, I'm certainly not a social scientist. I'm not, I'm not any sort of scientist. Um, you know, I, I never thought about it that much. I mean, I. I, you know, I think of myself as a writer, even when I don't write, because I thought of myself as a writer since I was about six years old. So how you think about yourself and how you cannot control how other people think about you. So, you know, I would very much like to be able to write. Obviously, if I could write, I would be writing. I do not know why I don't write. So, you know, uh, obviously it's some giant personal problem I have. 
there's all kinds of people that do some a version of what you do, but did you have any idols growing up in this area? Uh, well, I'm not given much to uh, worship or even fandom, but certainly I had childhood idols, which is really the last time. I, I, I mean, I, I, in Pretend is the City, I, I think I talk about Leonard Bernstein. He was one of my childhood idols. Mm-hmm. Dag Hammarskjöld was one of my childhood idols. Oh. No one even knows who he is now. I do. Hello. I love Dag Hammarskjöld. I loved him, like, so deeply. I have a photograph of him on my refrigerator. I almost bought an apartment that I could not afford, and that was too small, because it was in a building named after him that had a bust of him outside. Uh, <laughs> so he was the head of the UN, and he was killed in a plane crash. And there are many people that believed he was murdered. Um, mm-hmm. I, don't th- I was certainly not aware of that as a child. But I, when I was a child, uh, my class at school was taken to the UN for a tour of the UN, and children were very obedient. And so we were lined up according to height, and we were, you know, walked through the UN, and I was completely in awe of the entire, I was obsessed with the UN when I was a child. And I kept looking for Doug Hammarskjöld. I was certain I would see him there. And we were being led through uh, the UN, and a man walked past, and I thought it was Doug Hammarskjöld. And I just automatically followed him out of the line. And <laughs> I, he disappeared. And I pushed a door, and every alarm in the UN went off. And I burst into tears. I didn't know what I did. Uh, and, you know, a guard, like, grabbed me, and uh, the teacher came back and was yelling at me. And I kept saying, but I thought I saw Dick Hammerschild. I just wanted to see Dick Hammerschild. I don't know. I was probably seven or eight years old when I went. Um, and the UN was, like, a huge thing. It's still, you know, even though, you know, it hasn't done a spectacular job, you have to admit. Yeah. I still love walking past it. I still love looking at it. Mm-hmm. E.B. White wrote a fantastic thing about the UN. And no one thinks about it anymore. I'm aware of that, but I do. What do you like about it? I mean, when we went to the UN, one of the things they told us, they took us into the General Assembly and uh, they told us there were all these people with headphones, which was not a thing you saw then. That in itself was like walking into a rocket ship in the 50s. And they said, these people are simultaneously translating. You know, they would, people would give a speech in one language and then someone would translate it into 50 other languages. Now Netflix has taken that over. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now Netflix... Um, when they put something out, they translate it. But I don't think Netflix is really the right replacement for the UN. Getting back to Netflix, the pretend it's a city. You said people described it to you as a love letter to New York. But it's really a lot about a, a complex love relationship with New York. I, I think that, you know, you know, people complain that I complain. But, you know, truthfully, I wouldn't bother to complain this much about something I did not love. Mm-hmm. You know, if I don't like something, I don't complain about it. I just don't think about it. Yeah. Uh, believe me, I am not alone among New Yorkers to complain about New York. Every single New Yorker complains about New York. The reason that it angers me so much when things are wrong here is because this is New York. Fix it. Yeah. The, the reason it's called pretend it's a city is because you get behind people when they're in your way, tourists, and say pretend it's a city. Yes, because... The reason this, you know, initially came out of my mouth, you know, 15 years ago, whenever it was, was because it seemed to me that this behavior in the streets of New York was new at the time. In other words, for, you know, decades, you know, New York streets were always packed. And there was this unsaid idea that as people walked down the sidewalk, people walking toward them, everyone would swerve a little bit. This is why there weren't one billion collisions in the street every minute. So... At a certain point, people stopped doing that, you know, and so that it became like up to you, meaning me, to be the only person who moved to let another person pass. 
Um, and this, of course, enraged me. Now, this was partially just tourists. You know, they're not going anywhere. You know, they're not on their way somewhere. Um, and partially, and that it became worse when there were phones. <laughs> So, you know what I do? I actually go up behind people when they're on their phones. I do this in San Francisco, which is prevalent everywhere now. And I get up really close behind someone, or if they're in front of me on their phones heading towards me, I scream, put it down. And typically they apologize because they know they're bad. They know they're behaving badly in the streets. Well, that's just one of the many differences between San Francisco and New York. That I can yell at them, put it down, and I don't get attacked. I do it in New York, too. That no one, that, that people apologize. No one apologizes here. More with Fran Lebowitz after the break. If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash hardfork today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash hardfork. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we've teamed up with the New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. Also in the Netflix series, you talk about observing uh, Charles Mingus, how he interacted with Duke Ellington. You said he had a, had a, a violent temper, and, but you also say Duke Ellington is the only person I saw Charles Mingus defer to. You said that everyone has someone like that in their lives, no matter how great they may be. Who is that person for you or who was? Well, I would say that the person in my life whose opinion I, not just opinion, whose advice and opinion I sought, uh, I mean, always, and who I really listened to, you know, not just, you know, you know, kind of, you know, vaguely asked them, was Toni Morrison. My relationship with Toni was very long, and it was a very intimate friendship, and um, she was quite a bit older than I I am, or was, or, I mean, she's dead, obviously, but, um, but also because, you know, I've known a lot of very smart people in my life, but I've known only one wise person, and that was Toni. So, you know, Tony changed my mind or, you know, shattered an assumption in like a second. Tony loved, you know, crime novels and that kind of stuff and trials. And I was like watching a trial with her, talking about some trial of some crime. And I said to her, I don't remember what we were talking about, but I said, 
well, but don't you think that most people in jail are guilty? And she looked at me like I was a moron and said, no. No, I don't think most people in jail are guilty. And that was the first time that I ever considered that maybe enough people in jail are not guilty for it to be a severe central problem of the country. I never thought about that because, of course, I ha- had no contact, you know, with the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. What was the last conversation you had with her? Well, you know, the last year of Tony's life, she was really not well. You know, she was really not well. And she, she was in the country. She had a house in the country. We'd go up and see her there. But the main thing I tried to do when I would go visit her was, A, get her to come to New York, where I thought she would be better uh, served, you know, medically, um, and to get her to turn off MSNBC, <laughs> which she was watching 24 hours a day. And I would say, please, Tony, Why? just turn this off. Why did I try to get her to turn it off? Yeah. Because, it, it, you know, to pay uh, this, you know, attention to politics while Donald Trump is the president was too stressful for people. Mm-hmm. I thought it was too stressful. I said, Tony, you should not be so stressed. You know, you don't have to stay on top of this, you know, 24 hours a day. Please stop watching this. But she just couldn't. She was like addicted to it. Did you spend a lot of time watching it? Did you spend a lot of time being stressed about Donald Trump? I, I spent, like most people I know, five years of my life where I did not have a day I didn't have to think about Donald Trump. And this was, you know, it's, it, it's like he was like an occupying army in your mind. And, you know, among all the things that he did, I resented this tremendously. And I have to tell you that I hardly think of him now because I do not have to. Because although he still exists in the world and although, you know, people keep talking about him, he doesn't have the power anymore. So I don't care what he says. I never cared what he said before he was a president and I don't care what he says now. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, he's also a New Yorker. So let's talk about New York City. Or do you not consider him a New Yorker anymore? I never thought of him as a New Yorker. I Why? never thought of him as a New Yorker. Yeah, even though I know he lived in New York, I know he's from New York. I never thought of him as a New Yorker because he had really a kind of tourist idea of New York. You know, even the first time I even heard of Donald Trump uh, was when he knocked down Bonwit Teller to build that big piece of junk that he, you know, is there mm-hmm. now, uh, whatever it's called, the uh, Trump Tower. Um, and that's the first time I ever heard of him. And people that I knew, including myself, were appalled because there were these freezes on top of Obama Teller and some, you know, organization asked him uh, to take them off the building. Uh, he was outraged by this. Uh, he said, what are you talking about? It's my building. I own it. So he had no concept of it is a building that is on 57th and 5th Avenue that millions of people look at. And New Yorkers, one thing that really distinguishes New Yorkers is the idea that we own things we don't even rent. So it's our view of that building and takes them off and preserve them. And he promised to, and then he didn't because he discovered what anyone would know, that it's cheaper to just bang the building down than to take something carefully off the building. How has New York changed for you during the pandemic? Well, you know, it's changed, you know, I would say profoundly, you know, uh, mainly because, you know, what I think of and most people think of as urban life, you know, stopped. You know, I mean, it's not totally closed down and it's less closed down than it was. But the main thing that I miss that I didn't even know existed in my life was the number of people that I think of as people that are I'm friends with, not close friends, that I routinely saw all the time that I 
stop seeing because I was just running into them. So happenstance is gone, you know, for me and for I'm sure most people here. Uh, you don't run into people because you're not uh, in restaurants, you're not at parties, you're not in museums, you're not at galleries, you're not at movies, you're not seeing them. And that is something that will not come back until, you know, every person gets a vaccine, which I cannot stress enough to get a vaccine if you can get one. Did you get one? Have you gotten yours? I got the first one. I did. I got my first one. Mm -hmm. What have you changed in adapting to the COVID times? What has changed in your life? Obviously not going to parties and restaurants, but what else? Everything. I mean, everything I can think of. I mean, I suppose that I'm most looking forward to is not having to wear a mask, Mm -hmm. you know, which everyone hates. And this is a new thing that came up during the pandemic that would make me angry. You know, you see some people not wearing masks. In New York, there's a lot of compliance with mask wearing, but it's not total and it's less than it was. And I would think to myself, put on a mask. What's wrong with you? Oh, you don't like to wear it? No one does. (laughs) Everyone hates them. Who would possibly like them? They're horrible. You know, for me, uh, I, you know, I put the mask on right as soon as you put the mask on, you can't breathe. That's everyone. I wear eyeglasses. So the second I put the mask on, I can't see because the glasses get fogged up. Then totally having nothing to do with reality, but some psychological problem. The second I put it on, I can't hear. I know there's no reason for this, but this is what happens to me. So basically I'm, you know, walking around town. I'm Helen Keller, but without (laughs) the courage. So, you know, I'm dying to take the mask off. Believe me. You can still hear apparently, correct? Not on this phone call, but you can still hear. I can hear, but it, there, it, it does. I feel obviously, I mean, the not being able to hear, you know, which I noticed right away. Um, and I know there's no reason for it um, is obviously psychological. And it's because, you know, I feel so isolated with the mask on. Right. A hundred percent. So my son is a freshman at NYU and he loves New York. It's as if he's a New Yorker from day one, even though he didn't grow up there. He grew up in San Francisco. He asked me to ask you a question. He said, New York has changed so much over the years. Which part of it, if any, has stayed true from your perspective? You know, I'm certain since your son is a freshman at NYU that he's a very young kid. Um, New York changes all the time. It just doesn't usually change all at once. So, you know, completely, you know, uh, so that if your son is here for six months, I guarantee you he's going to notice things changed. To me, someone said to me, what's a real New Yorker? You know, how long do you have to live in New York to be a real New Yorker? I said, it could be a week. As soon as you start complaining that something is gone that you already saw, you're a New Yorker. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's not a square foot of this city that is the same as when I came here. And that has been true for decades. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I always say is no one can help where they're from. You can only help where you went. So if you come to New York, you're a New Yorker. Welcome. What would it take you to leave New York? Is there anything that would uh, make you leave New York? Apparently not. <laughs> I mean, it didn't even occur to me uh, to leave. You know, I didn't even think about it. I mean, I do not have another house. Uh, so obviously I didn't go to my other house I don't have. Um, but I have numerous friends who have other houses. And right away they went to these other houses. They invited me. And I thought, well, it's true that your house is nicer than any house I have. It is also true that you have what I really wish I would have, which is a cook, because I hate to cook. But it is also true that I do not feel like being a good guest. Mm-hmm. So I'd rather stay here and be a bad guest in my own apartment. And believe me, I have been. All right. So on that note, you mused in the documentary about uh, running for Nightmare, a job of New York, uh, if you could split it into shifts. 
I want to ask you about the new mayor's race, and I'd love to get very quickly uh, your take on the various people running uh, for mayor. There's about 30 candidates right now running. Um, Andrew Yang is leading in some polls. Does he have your endorsement, or what do you think of him? I cannot think of a more ridiculous idea. Well, I probably could. But okay. I, first of all, I never heard of this guy till he ran for president. Um, you know, he has one idea, you know, that's a, 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 in itself, you know, nothing, meaningless, if you don't connect it to a million complicated things. Um, he's not qualified to be the president. He is not qualified to be the mayor of New York. I think these bored rich people should do something else, get another hobby. Stop bothering us. Like what? I don't care what he does. Go skiing, buy a sailboat. I don't care. All right. What about Eric Adams, the former police officer and borough president of Brooklyn? You know, I always liked Eric Adams. He was a cop, as you mentioned. He was also started an organization within the police, I think called Black Officers and Law Enforcement. I'm sure that's not the correct title. I'm sure someone will correct me. Um, you know, I, he's good. He's smart. You know, uh, you know, because he was a cop and because he focuses on this one thing, this is an important thing in New York, but it's not the only thing in New York. And I just think it's too limited a take on New York. All right. Maya Wiley, a former lawyer to de Blasio, one of your favorites. You know, I kind of like her. I only know her from she's on television a lot here. Um, she's very smart. At first, I really liked her. Then I found out she worked for de Blasio. Then I didn't like her. Then I thought, well, maybe it's not her fault she worked for de Blasio. I mean, you don't always have your total choice of jobs. Um, I would love there to be a woman mayor. There's never been a woman mayor in New York. Scott Stringer, the New York City controller. Scott Stringer is someone I, I slightly know. You know, he's he is actually qualified to be the mayor of New York. Um, he's certainly financially uh, astute. And that is something in New York, there's really no money here. You know, there's no money in the country. Anything you see that looks like there's economic activity in the country is a kind of a stage set. You know, it can be pulled down in one minute. And so there's going to be a massive financial problems here. Uh, and so I think Scott Stringer would be good at that. Unfortunately, Scott Stringer as a physical presence is really not the sort of person that gets elected. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. he is not a terribly charismatic figure. I don't think Scott Stringer could win, frankly. What about Ray McGuire, the former Citigroup executive? You know, I don't know him at all. A number of people have started talking to me about him a few months ago. The only thing I know about him is that he was a banker. Um, and so, you know, I'm not, that's not my first choice. You know, I don't really know about him. Yeah. Uh, do you have a name who should run? Do you want Rudy Giuliani back? I'm teasing you there. Oh, yeah. I bet Rudy Giuliani, you know, is not the mayor. He's not, he may soon not be a lawyer. And he may and should be what Donald Trump is going to become, which is simply the defendant. Yeah, yeah. Um, one, the reason I'm asking about New York is I may have to move to New York. My wife, we live in Washington now for my kids, um, but uh, we may move there. So I have very uh, big concerns of who's running New York and bringing New York back. Um, and I want to get in a tiny bit about your personal life. We, we have very different journeys, I think. I have a lot of kids. I've been married. I've been gay married twice. Um, you've said you've been a terrible romantic partner. Have you ever gotten close to getting married? <laughs> Absolutely not. That, I mean, close to getting married. I I am a terrible, I, I'm trying to think of the like nicest way to say it about myself. I'm great at romance and I'm terrible at relationships. Uh -huh. I'm terrible at them. I'm really bad at them. I don't want them. I'm not good at them. I do not, I loathe domestic life. I have lived by myself my entire life. And you have to admit that's an incredible accomplishment for a lesbian. It is. I, incredible. Incredible. I just... I don't have the patience. I'm just not, 
I don't know, maybe I'm not a good enough person for it. I don't want to share my life to that extent. I never have. Um, it just doesn't interest me. You know, I don't care what other people do. I, I must say that, you know, when I was, uh, I mean, in the last many years, very often kids stop me and say, thank you, you know, Fran, for fighting for gay marriage. We really appreciate it. And I thought, I never fought for gay marriage. And let me tell you something. I never even thought that phrase didn't even exist when I was young. It would have been just a joke phrase. You know, so I was very surprised at people who are politically active and gay rights uh, things, which I was not, that the first two things they chose and succeeded at was marriage and joining the military. Right. I wanted to do both. I got married and I wanted to join the military, just so you know. And I have a hundred kids, just FYI. Well, I mean, it's not that I thought that people shouldn't be allowed to join the military. It's just that someone I know, a very rich man who gave a lot of money to the fight for, you know, being able to join the military, uh, who was old enough to have been uh, drafted during Vietnam. I said, how did you get out of going to Vietnam? And he said, I told them I was gay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. And very few people did that, by the way. I yeah. mean, very few pe gay people did that because once you said that, you also were never going to get a job, you know? Yeah. Um, so I was very surprised that all these gay people wanted to join the military. Anyone who wants to join the military, I certainly think you should be allowed to. If you want to get married, I certainly think you should be allowed to. But not me. Okay. Who's the most famous person you dated? I would never say that. Come on, Fran. I haven't said this my whole life, but I was waiting to say it, you know, to the New York Times. I'm not saying yeah. it. <laughs> Why not? It's only a small newspaper in New York. Because I'm very, I'm a private person. All right. Okay. You say you never get lonely and that staying around someone too long is worse than being alone. I wonder if you've ever felt fearful about being alone. I, mean, I think that what I probably said was that I've, I, I've never been lonely in my life, really. I mean, I've missed certain people, you know, which is to me not the same thing as being general, have a general loneliness, you know. There's certainly people I missed in my life and there's certain people I continue to miss, but there's, I just never felt lonely in the, in the way of like general loneliness. I've also never been bored unless I was with other people. So that may be the reason. <laughs> so what do you actually do all day? You know, my days really vary. I, you know, I, I don't have a typical day. I have to say I never have. One of the things I discovered during the pandemic is that certain things you wish for your entire life occurred, but you didn't mean that. In other words, you know, I've always said, I wish that all I had to do was lie on the sofa and read. Uh -huh. Oh, no, I didn't mean this way. You know, I walked into Times Square at the height of the lockdown. It was completely empty. And I stood there and I thought, you've been hoping for like, you know, 30 years that the tourists would leave Times Square. But I didn't mean this. Did you think about working on your books during the pandemic? I didn't think about it as much as other people did. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm aware I should be doing it. I'm, it's not that I'm unaware you know, I'm exactly as aware as when I didn't do my homework in school. Right, right. Well, you joke about having writer's blockade. Do you, do you want to finish these books or are they, can't, there's a reason you can't declare them officially dead and just move along? Well, I still have both of them. I mean, Exterior Science of Wealth is about half finished and Progress is also about half finished. I did at one point suggest to my publisher, to whom, as you can imagine, uh, you know, I've had, you know, many of these conversations with whom, uh, I said, well, I have half of one book and half of the other. You can maybe put them together and then they could turn it around. That would make no sense, but maybe people don't care. So um, the fact that I still own these things, I mean, I still have them physically, must mean that somewhere I imagine I might finish them. Yeah. And you don't, John, just let them go. Let them go. Goodbye. 
No. I mean, it's highly possible that whoever goes through my things after my death will find them in the exact same state they're in now, but I hope that's not the case. All right. I did ask Twitter for some questions. Um, I'm going to go through them, and these are from actual Twitter people um, who are huge fans of Fran Lebowitz. Okay. Okay. Uh, any New Year's resolutions? No, I never make New Year's resolutions. Never. I've never done it in my life. I did, I think it's in social studies, I did once write something called New Year's resolutions for others, you know, where I tell other people what to do. If you could pick one moment critical to New York City history to witness or witness again, which would it be? Wow. That's, I've never been asked that, and that's unusual. Um, I don't know, since I never thought that I could pick one minute moment in New York history to witness again. Um, I, you know, I wish I hadn't answered that question, but I don't because I've never thought about it. Okay. Anything? It would not be this minute, I'll tell you that. <laughs> okay. All right. That's a good answer. You've always seen wearing the same thing, but I would want to ask you about the cowboy boots. Do you own any more formal footwear? What about sneakers and comfortable shoes? Um, I own um, Manolo Blahnik shoes uh, that I wear or wore, you know, when I got more dressed up, which I haven't done in a year, um, when I wear, you know, a suit or a dinner jacket. Um, they are like 95 feet high. Um, all my uh, clothes that I had made, the, the pants are cut to them. So they're incredibly uncomfortable, but they make me look very tall, which is, you know, something that if you're not tall, is something that you wish you were. All right. How can you detest people yet love parties? I don't detest people. That's just not true about me. Uh, I mean, I realize people think that. I don't detest people. I am a, a kind of a split personality. I am alternately extremely sociable. And then when I'm not sociable, by which I mean when I'm not at social events or in public social life, in my domestic life, I'm solitary. All right. Well, we'll leave it at that. Now, Fran, how are you going to listen to this podcast without a computer or a, a smartphone? I'm not going to listen to it. I thought so. I thought that was the answer. I really appreciate you doing this. It's a pleasure. But could someone tell me how to shut this off? But could you just tell me which button on the right side? Hold, like where I pushed it. Don't leave before I do this. Oh, it worked. It's off. Yay. I feel so accomplished. You're so, you know what? <laughs> We're going to enroll you at MIT now. Yeah. What do you mean enroll? I should be graduating. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Thank you again. Thank you very much. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. This episode was produced by Naeem Araza, Hiba El Orbani, Matt Kwong, Vishaka Darba, and Wyatt Orm. Edited by Naeem Araza and Paula Schumann. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Eric Gomez and Sonia Herrero, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Liriel Higa, Kathy Tu, and Kristen Lynn. <laughs>